Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host in Cape Town, South Africa, at the Stellenbosch University Center for Chinese Studies, Kobus Van Staten. Kobus, how are you today? Good afternoon. I'm very well. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk about uh, three, maybe even four different issues today. Uh, first, we're going to head over to Ethiopia and talk about a massive shoe investment. Now, this comes last week. We talked about a huge auto investment in South Africa. Today, we're going to talk about a, a huge shoe and leather investment in uh, in Ethiopia and also kind of bring up on the issue of how Ethiopia is managing its relations with China a little bit differently than, uh, than other African countries. Countries are, and then also we're going to talk about uh, a trend that was on quite popular on my Twitter feed this week on um, uh, on the internationalization of the UN, and it looks like more and more countries are thinking out loud about adopting more UN-denominated policies in their foreign currency reserves, and whether or not they actually go through with it, that's a different story. We'll get Kobus's take on that. We're going to take a little bit of a detour into South African crime, and then finally we're going to end on uh, a little bit of a broader idea of uh, you know China's non-interventionist policy, and can non-intervention actually work in an era where it has such a huge footprint now, not only in China, but elsewhere around the world. So let's get started right off the bat. Ethiopian shoes. Uh, Kobus, tell us a little bit about this huge, huge uh, $2 billion investment that came in, uh, that was announced this week. Well, it's a massive, uh, you know, manufacturing plant uh, for leather, leather shoes um, set up by two Chinese companies um, in Addis Ababa. Um, and, you know, kind of Ethiopia being quite a kind of a leather capital um, in Africa, it has lots, you know, lots and lots of, of cattle. Um, and it's, it has a long historical kind of connection to the leather trade um, and also a long connection like historical connection to the shoe trade. But the interesting thing is that the, the historical traditional Ethiopian shoe trade was decimated by Chinese imports um, during the early part of, of the 2000s. And now the Ethiopians seem to have have kind of re, redefined themselves and they managed to, to kind of find a way of uh, dealing with this Chinese competition and, and kind of, you know, find a different way of, of, of making shoes. Well, let's kind of look at some of the particulars of the deal. Uh, it's being led by Chinese, uh, the Huajian International Shoe PLC. It's a $2 billion deal. Part of the deal would also be to set up a light manufacturing zone. And then it would, says it would create employment for 100,000 people. So, you know, this might be part of another trend that we're also seeing, which is, you know, the Chinese are trying uh, slowly to wean themselves off of this low-end manufacturing. And one of the things that we saw in Zambia, we've seen it now in South Africa and here in Ethiopia, is the creation of these special economic zones for for Chinese manufacturing, uh, where they want to offshore uh, this low-end uh, manufacturing. So that might be part of the trend here. You, you brought up one point which I think is very interesting in how the Ethiopians are managing their relationship with China differently than others, and they were decimated earlier on with the arrival of cheap Chinese imports, which is a complaint from a number of African countries. Uh, and yet today now they've gotten very, very strict on certain import quotas. You also don't have an enormous surplus of Chinese labor in Ethiopia. What can you tell us about how the Ethiopians are looking at the Chinese and inter actually interacting with them on this level? 
Well, it seems like they took a pretty, in terms of their shoe creation, it seems like they took a pretty creative, uh, you know, kind of viewpoint. Um, they they seem to have taken the Chinese shoes that 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 made the bottom fall out of the market. And you have to remember that, according to some reports that I've I've read. Almost like more than half of of the workers in the in the Ethiopian shoe manufacturing sector lost lost their jobs due to Chinese imports during you know during the last decade. Um, so I mean this was a massive crisis, but the, they seem to have um, taken a lot of of Chinese methods on board, particularly design. They 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 seem to have combined Chinese design or Chinese inspired design with Ethiopian manufacturing because for a, a lot of them were saying that the Chinese shoes are pretty but they don't last as long so they seem to have kind of used what they could what they could from the Chinese example and then kind of redefined themselves you know kind of both for the local market but also particularly to find a different kind of export market and and it's interesting because this is you know we're about just what four or five months out from when Michael Sada took office in or won the election in Zambia and said that he wanted to reorient the relationship between China and Zambia so that the Chinese respected uh, his country's labor laws, import laws, immigration laws, all of the various kind of regulations. Uh, in, in, in some cases, it seems to me that uh, Addis Ababa is a little bit more advanced than almost any other country that I've kind of been able to, to ascertain, that they have been able to kind of restrict China's engagement into only the areas that benefit Ethiopia. And in some ways, this is potentially a model for how other African countries can deal with the Chinese and be able to deal with the, uh, the effects of, uh, of, of, of global globalization. Yeah. Do, do you think that might have something to do with the fact that Ethiopia isn't completely defined just by by raw you know, mineral resources the way the DRC is, for example? It might be that. It also it potentially. Um, I'm not sure that now that I think about it a little bit more, probably not in my opinion. I have a feeling it's that the, the administration, the government has a much more coherent view of how they want the Ch what role they want the Chinese to actually play in Ethiopia. Whereas in a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, you see uh, you don't have that unity of government. In, in many respects, you also have a, a, a transparency and a corruption problem that, that, that really gets to be played out you know, very well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, kind of to just, you know, bring it back to the shoes particularly, I'm very interested to see where these shoes end up, you know, kind of and what kind of markets they 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 end up entering, you know, kind of, they apparently are exporting to Italy, they also, they're planning to export to Japan, um, and, you know, kind of that, I have to say, made me a bit doubtful, because, you know, I just, I, I used to live in Japan, and, you know, that's a very, very tough market to get into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they would they would export to Japan, but I can see that they would be able to uh, export certainly into the domestic African market and potentially into the kind of you know Mediterranean market, the lower end of the of the European market might be an area where they can uh, they can penetrate as well. Uh, and this is all very much part of China's kind of go global strategy, and especially into emerging markets where they have much lower barriers to entry in that respect. So probably again, and this this is all speculation. Uh, it's a good base for Middle East, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Mediterranean markets, maybe not uh, into the advanced markets in Europe, Japan, and the U.S. 
Yeah, exactly. Because those, you know, those countries are shoe exporters, you know. They are shoe, yeah. So, okay, well, let's move on to topic number two. Uh, one, again, that really was a little bit of a buzz on Twitter this past week as one country after another. And I got into a number of discussions with uh, people from across the continent who mentioned that you, uh, the internationalization of the UN or the renminbi, uh, the RMB, is becoming an increasingly prominent topic across, uh, with, let's see, let's list off the countries now, starting in Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, you know, that's just a few of the countries that are either considering adopting the UN as they're uh, pegging their own currency to the UN, which is unlikely, but at least it's been floated as an idea, no, no less in Zimbabwe, or they are talking about denominating a small portion of their foreign currency reserves into RMB. So, Kobus, what, what do you think is behind this, this trend and why is it happening now? Well, it seems to be, um, you know, a reflection just of, of the, the size and the, the importance of China-Africa trade, and particularly China's role as, as a major trading partner in Africa. So, you know, kind of in the past, a lot of these, a lot of China-Africa transactions took place via dollar. Um, so things had to be converted to dollar and then again converted from dollar. Um, and, you know, kind of, so this seems to be a, an attempt to kind of to, to smooth, you know, that process, to destroy streamline that process. Um, it's been going for a little while, um, you know, kind of since I think about 19, uh, since about 2010, 2011. Um, so, you know, kind of it's still really new. But, uh, you know, kind of, for example, we, we in the past, we talked about Standard Bank, like South Africa's big bank, that's also very closely related to China. Um, and they have been leading the leading that kind of development in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, and of course, the International Commerce Bank of China, ICBC, owns 20% of Standard Bank. And in fact, just this past week, there was an announcement made uh, by Standard Bank saying they're going to place even more emphasis on Sino-African trade uh, at the expense of some of their other global operations. And so this all might be kind of tied up into it. Uh, let's kind of take the, the Zimbabwe example uh, for a little bit. Zimbabwe floated out the idea that they were willing or thinking of pegging their currency to the UN. The problem with that is that the UN itself is not a convertible currency. Uh, nonetheless, there was that that idea was floated. Does that strike you as just Zimbabwe's, you know, they have this tendency of just trying to stick it to the West and really just trying to kind of poke, you know, the, the, the Western powers who they've not had a very good relationship with? And is, are they using China in this case as just, you know, an opportunity to kind of put a lever between the US, UK, IMF, World Bank and, and Zimbabwe? That's the feeling I got. You know, kind of there. There's a there's a kind of a an anti-West rhetorical flourish that tends to pop up from the Zimbabwean government very frequently. Um, and it seemed to you know that seemed to me a, an example of that. You know, kind of when they were pressed on it, they they retreated actually from that and saying like, well, maybe, but not soon. You know, maybe in a few years. So you know, kind of it, it seemed to be like something kind of said in the heat of the moment, but not necessarily reflecting hard policy. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to I'll, I'll do my theory on Zimbabwe. I'm going to disregard only because, uh, you know, it's hard to take, you, you know, the economics of, 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 of 
of that country kind of too seriously considering the political situation they have there. But in terms of Ghana, Nigeria, and some of the other countries that actually do in, in South Africa, um, you know, I look at this as the uh, there's a political dimension to this as well, which is to me the this reflects the continuing weakness of the United States. It reflects a, a lack of faith in the dollar um, as a, a I mean you know as a, as the future currency of record. I suspect that the dollar will be the dominant currency for at least another ten years. But at the end of the day, we're starting to see a trend now away from the dollar. Uh, the UN at some point will be internationalized. Um, again, last week, China is now announcing that it is offering uh, RMB loans to BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So you're going to see much more of China's activity happening in the UN, and that's reflecting China's rise uh, both as a political and as an economic power as well. And you're going to see other partner countries kind of adapt to that. So in my view, uh, there's a political dimension in addition to the pure economics of it. One thing I wanted to ask ask you is that um, at the moment, you know, the trade between the import from Africa to China is a, 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 the large the large part of that are commodities, particularly oil and metals. And yeah. at the moment, commodities are denominated in dollar. Um, do you foresee that changing at some stage in the future, or is that how is how that you know reality kind of affect this? That will probably stay in dollars for quite some time. In part because the Europeans aren't eager to move off of the dollar anytime soon, and so much of it passes through London. Um, that said. More and more will be done in yuan and, you know, outside of, of, of oil and of metals. And I suspect that China-Africa trade will, will diversify considerably. Well, I, I, you know, we're talking about shoes here and cars and all these other things will diversify. And that, that channel, that secondary channel beyond oil and metals may actually go into, in, into yuan convertible trade. So if, if the yuan, of course, becomes convertible. Um, that, you know, that's the big problem for multinationals operating in China is they make all this money in China and have a very difficult time converting it back into hard currency. It's gotten easier now, but you know, it, doing business in Africa is hard enough as it is. And then dealing in a currency that you, that you have a difficulty converting and that isn't freely traded uh, just makes the complexity of doing business that much more. So uh, you know, China has a little bit more that it has to do on its side in order for the UN to become a true international currency. But you're definitely seeing the beginning of something happening here. Whether it's a trend, whether it's a shift, I'm not quite sure, but something is happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of we, we mentioned Standard Bank. One of the Beijing-based economists for Standard Bank was saying that uh, by 2015, they project that 40% of China-Africa trade will be settled in in, um, in UN. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that could be a, a massive change. I Yeah, that's what I see happening a lot more. And I, and I get the sense that a lot of African banks and a lot of African uh, business dealer, uh, you know, corporations and whatnot, uh, regardless of whether they're from Nigeria or Zimbabwe or whatnot are comfortable dealing in yuan and comfortable dealing in multiple currencies, um, whereas I think a lot in the West have been so used to dealing in either yen, euro, or, or dollars, and this is just the way it's always been, so it's hard to imagine doing something else. So we'll see if that, uh, if that adaptability continues uh, in Africa. Okay, so let's move on to um, a third topic. We're going to take this very, very short, because I, I saw this as a headline, and I wanted to get Kobus's reaction on it, because it struck me, but then Kobus was kind of like, well, it's not that big of a story. So... Uh, just this cross just uh, today, 
that 32 Chinese nationals were killed in robberies, traffic accidents, and other mishaps in South Africa in 2011. This is co coming from the South Africa Chinese Community and Police Cooperation Center, known by the wonderful acronym of SACCPCC. I love that. <laughs> uh, so 32 killed, you know, that strikes me as a pretty large number. But what's your reaction, Kobus? Well, you know... <laughs> Okay, here I'm going to make South Africa look bad. But um, in the bigger context of crime and traffic accidents, both major killers in South Africa, that number is actually not that big. Um, and, you know, kind of I'm so sad to have to say that, but it's actually relatively small, you know, compared to the amounts of people that, compared to the, all of the people who die from those two causes in South Africa. I mean, South Africa has a massive crime problem, even now, and a massive... Um, traffic accident problem. And, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, I don't think it's actually that bad. You know, I'm, I'll have to see more statistics, but my gut reaction is it might actually, it looks worse from the Chinese side than it does from the South Africa. I, I suspect from the Chinese side, it looks absolutely horrifying. I mean, from the Chinese side, I think that they're, you know, this is the kind of headlines. And this headline, of course, is a China Daily headline. So I imagine that the Chinese are looking at this and going, oh. And, but what do you think this does for South Africa, which, you uh, Jacob Zuma has been trying to position Johannesburg as the kind of financial center for the entire continent. And he, he's trying to attract more and more uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises. He wants to get not just the low-end manufacturing, but he also wants to get financial services. He wants to get legal services. He wants to get all of those kind of, you know, white-collar jobs. And they see headlines like this, um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of scary. It's a massive problem. I mean, I can't actually can't overstate how much of a problem it is. Well, it's it it completely it, it chases South Africans away. It makes it impossible for people to move here. It it's just you know, and it's something that the government has been has been promising to get under control for so long, and since democratization, they haven't been able to. You know, you know kind of um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was actually even considering a job in Johannesburg and. Uh, and for the same reason, just said, I don't want to take that chance. I, I, I don't know if the headlines are real or if they're not. But at the end of the day, I was just like, you know what? That's just not something I want to take a chance either with my, myself or my family. So uh, I can imagine a Chinese person looking at this and just, you know, Africa by itself is, you know, f must freak them out. And then on top of that, to have this level of crime and violence is, just, you know, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. I mean, I don't really have anything, that, you know, to defend it. I mean, it's just, it's just an awful situation. Okay, well, moving on now to our fourth topic, somewhat of a, a larger global topic, and this is one of these topics that will continue on throughout for much of the, the rest of the year, uh, and, and really came to the fore last year with the rise of uh, the, the Libyan war and China's surprising vote at the United Nations Security Council uh, to abstain from the vote on whether or not to uh, launch military operations in Libya. And that, of course, uh, paved the way for the Chinese uh, and, and for the, the international community to launch international operations. Of course, China was not a part of the military aspect of that. But it did raise questions on China's role and its foreign policy, you know, tradition of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. And this, of course, has been a bedrock since Zhou Enlai of Chinese foreign policy. Uh, you know, an article came out. Where did that come from? Was that in the, I'm just looking in that, where that article that you sent me, that to me from, uh, you know, really raising this question of, of, for the Center for American Progress, a think tank in the United States, about the collapse of its non-intervention 
prevention is foreign policy. And Kobus, I'm, I'm kind of curious on terms of what you think as to whether or not China can maintain uh, what it's done rather well for the past 30 years and really kind of adhering to non-interventionism. And in this day and age, when it has interests that are so deep, so wide, and so varied, can it maintain non-interventionism? Yeah, I mean, the reason we decided to talk about this is because some, you know, uh, China is criticized for non-interventionism frequently, particularly in relation to its, to its um, you know, relationships with with certain African governments. You know, kind of, you know, we talked in the past about its very complicated relationship with Sudan. Um, and, you know, the, the fact of Chinese economic growth, meaning that it's not only more and more Chinese companies having more and more complicated investments everywhere, but more and more Chinese people actually living in all kinds of different countries. And, you know, both of those are now changing this kind of equation. You know, kind of it's making it much harder for China to, to be non-interventionist. And, you know, kind of we saw that particularly a few weeks ago when, when the Chinese workers were, were kidnapped in, in Sudan. Um, you know, what does non-interventionism mean in this kind of context where there are Chinese citizens living all over Africa, um, you know, kind of, and in, so suddenly, you know, kind of the, the, the need to protect those people is, is bringing a kind of a new challenge to this kind of historical uh, policy of, of not in, intervening in, in the politics of other countries. You, you know, but it, there, there it feels to me a little bit of this damned if you do, damned if you don't. So let's play out a couple different scenarios here. You know, Hillary Clinton last week, uh, berated the Chinese for for not doing enough, and then she wants them to kind of play a larger, more constructive role in international affairs and development. Okay, fine. Imagine that the Chinese, uh, you know, you know, are doing what the Americans are doing in Uganda with you know the hunt for Coney, and you, I'm sure you've heard about the Coney 2012 craze that's been going on right now. Uh, but yeah. imagine if if the Chinese deployed a hundred special forces to not to engage in military conflict, but as advisors to Uganda in a very similar operation to find a warlord. Uh, I think people would lose their complete, their minds. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think if you saw Chinese, you know, drones flying over, you know, Somalia, you know, people would lose their minds. I think if you saw a much more robust, you know, military and, and police intervention, not only in Africa, but elsewhere, um, the U.S. and other powers would absolutely freak. I, surprisingly, I don't think African countries would freak quite as much. I think they would actually welcome um, a different presence from an international power. But I just, you know, so on the one hand, there's this need to go in and protect these assets and to be more engaged and to not simply look like a free rider on the international system that was built up by the Europeans and the Americans. And that security is still to this day provided in large part by the United States. Uh, you know, all of that oil coming back from Angola and coming back from Sudan via those tankers through the Straits of Malacca, through the, the, the Western Pacific, uh, is protected by the United States Navy. Um, so they are benefiting directly from that. You know, do we want to start seeing, uh, you know, nuclear-powered Chinese submarines patrolling those waters and Chinese battle groups patrolling those waters to this day? I'm not so sure that the West really wants that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, kind of, I think a very good example of that is when, when China was discussing, you know, kind of how it should uh, try and, and counter piracy um, in, the, in the Indian Ocean. Um, and they, they floated the idea that they might need to have, um, you know, naval bases in the Seychelles yeah. and in the Gulf of Aden. And suddenly India was 
getting very, very nervous. And this became, you know, kind of this became a big kind of point of discussion. And the Chinese, as far as I understand, kind of had to retreat from that a little bit. Um, you know, kind of it's, yeah, you, you, they might get themselves into a lot of a lot of controversy in this way. Well, I suspect that what you'll probably see is uh, more aggressive uh, activity at the United Nations. You will probably see more deployment of UN kind of humanitarian workers. I, I don't foresee a, a massive deployment of, U, of of Chinese troops just because I don't think they have the training and skills yet to do that. Uh, that will probably change. Um, fundamentally, though, I have a feeling, and this is just my, my gut on this, the Chinese are going to become more interventionists. Um, whether they call it interventionism is another thing. Uh, I don't know how they got around the Libya vote in their discussions in Beijing in terms of whether or not they called this interventionism or not, because it clearly was uh, interventionist in that respect. Um, they'll have to be. There's just no other way around it. Um, they're also going to play by a very, very different set of rules than the West. And that, I think, we don't have, just like we've talked about on this podcast before, that colonialism and that type of language from that period doesn't fit what the Chinese are doing in Africa. Well interventionism and, and these types of, of international relations vocabulary also don't fit necessarily what the Chinese are going to be doing because it's not going to be the same way uh, that the Americans and the Europeans have been doing it for so many years. So there might be a, a whole new set of rules that come out based on what the Chinese do. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one of one of the points that we looked at um, was the fallout in North Africa um, of the the the, the veto on the, the on Syrian intervention. That when the Chinese kind of vetoed the kind of with with Russia vetoed intervene you know intervening in sanctions in Syria. Um, and what what ended up happening was that the Chinese the Chinese embassy got a lot of became targeted by protests. The Chinese embassy in in Libya, I mean, um, became targeted by protesters, and they. You know, kind of, there was a lot of graffiti kind of sprayed on that tried to rip down the Chinese flag. Do you feel that 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 Syria vote has it kind of uh, tarnished China's um, image in North Africa? It may have tarnished uh, China's image in North Africa. I don't think that the Chinese care that much about it. At the end of the day, what both the Russians and the Chinese saw out of Libya, uh, and I think it was Resolution 1973 that uh, that authorized the use of force in Libya, terrified them, and they don't want to see that level of aggression. U.S. and European intervention because they're just absolutely, uh, you know, petrified that this comes to their shores one day and that you have a U.N. resolution that justifies intervention in Xinjiang, in uh, Inner Mongolia, in, you know, in certainly in Tibet or potentially even in Taiwan. So, so at the end of the day, you know, they're very, very practical when it comes to Chinese foreign policy and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They are extremely real politic. And, and in this, in, so whether or not their feelings were bruised by the Libyans or certain Syrians or certain North Africans not being happy with their vote, or even domestically, there was a lot of blowback on Weibo as well in China. Um, I think at the end of the day, their long-term interest is to make sure that the UN is contained, um, and they don't want to see this type of, 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 of in, you know, these, these adventures again. So I would, I would be very, very doubtful if you'll see the Chinese participate in, in, in a UN mission like this again.
Yeah, my you know, kind of my my feeling is also that in a way, talking about the the end of the non-interventionist uh, policy might be premature in the sense that we haven't really so far, or that not that I've read anyway, haven't seen a, a kind of a new a new vision of what a new interventionist China would mean. I mean, under what kind of vision they would intervene if they wanted to, emerging from China, you know, kind of. So I think that that seems to be a necessary step before that kind of policy gets gets uh, kind of rethought. And and what is intervention? I, I, you know, is intervention purely in, in, in the American context a military activity? Is it, you know, what we talked about uh, with the UN? Is it possibly there are there economic interventions as well? Are there trade interventions? You know, intervention has a lot of different meanings to it. These were not questions that the Chinese had to face back in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s or all the way up until the, the mid-90s. Uh, now they do, um, you know, with, you know, a million Chinese now living in Africa, with all of the accompanying investments that are there, um, there's a lot to think about, and there's a lot of engagement at a much deeper level. So we might see, um, you know, is is a Blackwater style, you know, private contractor uh, is that military intervention? If you start to see rescue operations being kind of paid for by the Chinese government but conducted by private security contractors, is that intervention? Not so sure. So, so we will, you're right, we'll probably see some kind of hints of it. Um, and this also a lot depends on Xi Jinping. What does he think of, and what's his foreign policy, you know, signature going to be? Uh, is it to be a more aggressive foreign policy? Is it going to be uh, focused on natural resources as it's been? Is it going to be an economic foreign policy? So all of these questions are, await uh, President Xi and what happens when he gets, you know, securely ensconced in his new offices at uh, so, well, that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. We went on a little bit longer than normal with an extra topic or two. Um, but we we will be back next week with yet another installment of the podcast. In the meantime, Kobus, where can people uh, find you if they want to look you up on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Excellent. And you can find me, uh, Eric Olander, at E-O-Lander. So that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R on Twitter. Uh, I'm tweeting, oh, the top China-Africa headlines about four to five times a day. Uh, so you can follow that one if you want to stay on top of what we're doing. And, of course, uh, we're adding new content every week to ChinaAfricaProject.com, including our very first, uh, what we're calling 3QI, the 3 question interview, and I'm just about to post an interview with a researcher in Denmark on the sickle mines deal in uh, in the DRC, so from Johanna Janssen in Denmark. She sent back some wonderful responses to our questions about that deal, so I encourage you to, to check that out. So that's it for this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much for listening.